Hello, everybody. This is Jean Nathan. It's Crosstown Conversations, and I have two very interesting guests tonight. And those of you who read my newsletter, and I know there are quite a few of you, and, and, and by the way, if, if you would like to get it, because it really does cover a, a quite a bit of territory, um, if you would just send an email to uh, jnathan.ci at gmail.com, we'll add you to the list. That's jnathan.ci at gmail.com. So you can get it. Um, so if you had seen this newsletter, you would see how I'm fascinated by the fact that in East Baton Rouge, a group of people were able to uh, push back on the um, uh, big oil company that was trying to secure yet another nice little laundry list of, of um, tax uh, incentives um, at the cost of revenues for the city. And um, the pushback uh, came on behalf of education. They said, Let, let's, get, let's keep this money here and for our schools. Um, we, we really don't need to be giving these incentives again to, um, uh, to, to a company that uh, um, really doesn't need any more when we are really lacking in teachers and support staff and everything else uh, you need. Um, in, in a school system. So a group uh, called Baton Rouge Together or Together Baton Rouge, Together Baton Rouge. Uh, which is a subset of um, the uh, uh, whole uh, um, uh, state, uh, a number of branches throughout the state. Uh, I'm, I'm distracted because somebody's trying desperately to get through to me on the phone and I I'm, I'm keep hitting, you know, no, I can't answer the phone right now. Um, but uh, um, Broderick Baggart is um, a leader of uh, the, this, that group and of the uh, Together Louisiana group itself. Uh, so we're going to talk about how this came down. But what's fascinating to me about it also is the fact that it, it happened days before the announcement that the the people, the community activists in Queens had successfully pushed back on Amazon, one of the absolute behemoth companies in the world, headed by literally the richest guy in the world, who were also trying to get billions of dollars in, in, in state revenues to incentivize their coming to New York. And the people in Queens said, hey, you know what? <laughs> Get out of here, <laughs> um, which actually that's exactly what Amazon wound up doing, for better or worse. There might have been some good jobs and economic opportunity involved in that, um, but the way they were kind of pushing their weight to get what they needed and wanted, not needed, but wanted in the way of incentives, um, was, uh, you know, taking empowerment to another level. So... With that introduction, let me um, bring on um, uh, Broderick Baggart, who is going to talk. I, I, I want to really, I'm, I'm fascinated about how this happened in particular, and then let's talk about your organization and, and, and organizing citizenry to stand up to things that we kind of take for granted. I mean, it, it was Bible. It was absolute 
state political Bible that you had to give away, you know, millions and millions of dollars, in some case billions, to companies to get them to locate here. And a lot of those companies that we've been locating here are petrochemical uh, companies that are uh, polluting and destroying our environment. So it, it's, it's not a pretty picture all the way around. How, how did that happen in Baton Rouge? How did that go down? So this is <clears throat> the vote by the East Baton Rouge Parish School Board to reject a property tax exemption request from ExxonMobil. Uh, took place in January. Uh, excuse me one second. Susan, I need to make sure that um, we're hearing him because I'm not hearing him in my earphones. It's okay? It's cool? Okay, go It, it ahead. took place in January, um, but it was the culmination of about two and a half years of contestation. Um, let me set a context for it. The, the context is, did you ever wonder why Louisiana has so much wealth in natural resources and yet ranks near the bottom of every social and economic indicator. We have ranked first or second in uh, natural gas refining, in oil refining, in minerals, in chemical production. We're number three. We're a top ten oil producing state. We're first in the nation for port tonnage. Actually, five of the 15 largest ports in the country are in Louisiana. We rank number two in sugar production, number one in salt production, number three in rice. Uh, Louisiana has ranked number one or number two in capital investment by manufacturers every year for the last 10 years. And then you look at the other side of the ledger and we're number 46th for infant mortality, 49th for poverty, 47th for household income, dead last for income gap by gender, education, healthcare, life expectancy down the list. If we were middle of the pack, <laughs> that would be one thing, right? Um, so in part, the, the context is what is going on? How can an economy that's got not just the river, but the, where the river meets the Gulf, that has the largest uh, salt and, and mineral deposits, that has oil and gas production, a pipeline infrastructure, that puts us at the center of the global economy, especially now because we figured out how to liquefy natural gas and send it around the world. I mean, southwest Louisiana. Well, also, we're also doing all of this uh, pretty nasty fracking. That's right. That's right. And, and, that, and this is the, you know, the fracking that's going on in, in Texas all goes into pipelines and gets refined right here and in Texas. So um, – uh, so that's the context. We, we about four, really after Hurricane Katrina, started looking at those statistics and saying, well, let's not just take that as a rhetorical question, what's going on. Let's figure out what's going on. Why is that maybe, are we just wrong about how significant this wealth production is? Maybe it's overstated. Or maybe there are some policies in place that are doing something different here than in other places, right? Um, so it was looking in at that and digging into it that we discovered – this is like Columbus discovering, right? I mean, came across, realized that the industrial tax exemption program exists. The industrial tax exemption program is the largest state or local subsidy to corporations in the United States of America. It goes back to 1936. It is a – and it's the only program – 
not just in the country right now, but in the history of the country, that has allowed a state board to approve tax exemptions on local entities' revenue. So a state board, every two months since 1936, has been meeting, and in 30 minutes, rubber-stamping billions of dollars of property tax exemptions that take money out of the school districts, out of the sheriff's departments, out of the parishes, out of the cities, out of anything that that you pay a millage for, okay? Um, The result of that is it went on autopilot, and they started giving tax exemptions not just for the stuff that Amazon got, where it's to try to attract a company. They gave tax exemptions for every single dime of capital investment that every manufacturer made every single year. So Exxon, the one that was rejected in January this year, that was their 217th tax exemption since the year 2000. ExxonMobil has gotten 216 separate tax exemptions approved in East Baton Rouge Parish since the year 2000. Uh, and the result has been devastating economically. We have been committing economic suicide by allowing these exemptions to suck a huge portion of the resources that otherwise build up the schools, pay teacher salaries, invest in roads. And it's not the only factor. There's a lot to why we stay poor. But we have become convinced that this is a major factor in why the wealth that we have in this state never seems to add up to improvements in quality of life like it does in other states that look like they're doing the same thing, but they're really doing it on an, an, an exponentially smaller scale and in a, a different way than we scale have. scale and then also programmed to attracting a new company as opposed to just giving it away year after year. That's absolutely right. There's a big debate in economics between whether these exemptions and incentives even matter at all, right? Because there's a game that companies play where they know they want to go to Calcasieu Parish and they pick two other sites and they get people competing against each other. So there's a debate in economics over whether exemptions and incentives matter for site location. There's no debate in whether exemptions matter when companies are just investing in maintenancing their own capital equipment. You can't improve your computer systems uh, or upgrade your, your, your boilers at the plant in Baton Rouge anyplace else. It has to happen there. So what we've been doing is something that nobody has even thought to study because it, it's so insane that you need to incentivize this that, that, that it's not even something that's discussed. Not only has an exemption like the one that was rejected ever been approved in the state of Texas, it's never been asked for because if somebody showed up and said, hi, we're one of the world's largest and most profitable companies, we'd like to give you an exemption. Now get this, retroactively, the investments that they wanted an, an, an incentive on had already been completed more than two years ago. So they're asking and saying we need school district funds to incentivize something that only can happen here, that's not an expansion, that's not mobile, and that we already did two years ago. And believe it or not, that rejection was revolutionary. It was because it was the first time that, at least in East Baton Rouge, Paris, there have been one or two other places around the state uh, where a, a sheriff has said no, a school district has said no, but here it was in a big city with the, the biggest gorilla, okay, um, who is who is well-respected even and, by and our and organization. In a city that is virtually owned by petrochemical, if you look on the riverbanks, 
uh, around Baton Rouge. It's just one petrochemical plant after another. Well, and, and has been. But I think that's what has been changing culturally and politically is that this is now a – a, 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 a significant mid-sized city that's got urban problems, that's got major inequalities, and uh, really it's not owned anymore. And I think that's what was a shock to the folks who, uh, the, you know, lobby so the and, and the, the lobby that they – right. They just assume that if we ask, you say no, and that's the relationship. We, you, you say yes. If we ask, you say yes, that's the relationship we have here. But because now these exemptions for the first time – I left something out – in 2016 – our organization pushed for, and then the governor signed an executive order, which for the first time since 1936 gave local entities, the school districts, the sheriffs, and the parish governing authorities, that's the city council here, the metro council in Baton Rouge, police juries and other places, gave them the authority to say yes or no to these exemptions. They have the authority basically to either veto or approve them, and that changes everything because now for the first time, giving an exemption has to be weighed against what that money could go for, right? So um, uh, in the past, it's been the state board that rubber stamps them. Now you had East Baton Rouge Parish School District who, look, they are very business friendly. This was a tough vote, but they have a $30 million operating deficit in their current fiscal year. They have teachers that have not gotten a salary increase in 10 years, and they're looking at their constituents who have built a, a, a movement around this and saying, you have a choice. Are you going to do what you know is an incentive uh, or are you going to make a vote for the people and, and, and students of this community? Um, and they made the right vote, which was a very modest vote. It was a no-brainer, but it, it, it shook up the political establishment in this state and I think for the first time had, had people realize, well, there there is a broad majority – who don't want to do this anymore. They don't want to just give away money for nothing. When you say there's a broad majority, where? In East Baton Rouge or in other places in the state? I mean, how can you say that? Is there polling information that indicates that people are ready to say, uh, wait a minute? Look, we, we have polled it. Um, and informally, you know, online, this is not with a professional polling company. But 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 when you ask, and it depends always how you ask the question, right? If you If you ask it, are you willing to give incentives to create jobs? That's one thing. If you say, uh, should incentives be tied to job creation, which is all we're saying, that you should have to create jobs to get an incentive, and should it be prohibited to get an incentive on something you already completed? I'm telling you, the only people we've found who disagree with those two points are being paid to disagree with it because you are you're allowing – <laughs> this this would have allowed the the Amazon deal, you know. Uh, and frankly, if the Amazon deal were happening in Louisiana, I think it would be a different story. You've got a incredibly tight labor market there. You've got you know uh, more businesses than they know what to do with. That that's kind of one context. I think we would have said, Amen, bless the Amazon deal here if it really is going to bring that kind of job creation. Let me give you one other stat: the 217 exemptions I mentioned. That resulted in $650 million of lost revenue just in East Baton Rouge Parish. And you know what the net change in jobs since 2000 to now by the company that got those exemptions was a decline of 1,980 jobs. Now, here's what's going on. They're not offshoring. They're not sending them jobs to Mexico or Indonesia. They're becoming more efficient and capital intensive. 
these incentives, if you want to it's call more, them that. It's just more and more automation. It's automation, That's what's happening right? around the country now. It's not the offshore thing. That's the right. Automation. They're making as much oil as ever, right, um, or, or refining it. They're making as much petrochemicals as ever, The but it's becoming more and more automated. But that's what we're subsidizing. No place else in the world gives up public revenue for a company to automate. Why? Because they already are incentivized. They have the profit motive there. And the profit motive is they get to make as much product at a lower cost because there's less labor involved. To, to, to give public dollars to have companies automate is it's insane. insane. It's insane, and the only reason why it has happened is because it has been in the hands of this state board of commerce and industry, which never hears from a school teacher, never hears from a sheriff. They have been insulated from the – I mean, ask the listeners, have you even heard of this board? Would you know that that board – remember the, the film tax credit that, that, that has gotten a lot of press? This board every year gives away 10 – times as much public money as the film tax credit did in its highest year, right? And the film tax credit uh, got blind really because one company was um – uh, did I mess up my <laughs> – uh, uh, was was uh, taking advantage of it inappropriately. And that just, you know – and I really uh, have been a critic of Lee Zurich for this because he, he took that story on, you know, wonderful, do an investigative story. But you know what? Tell the other side of the story too. That's always an obligation of the media to make sure that you cover the whole – Waterfront, and he never talked about the benefits of that program and what other people who were doing the right thing were doing. So uh, the film industry got a really bad uh, um, a black eye, and we wound up um, actually closing down the incentives and, and, and losing a lot of business as a result. Some of that business is never coming back. It's gone to Atlanta. It's gone to other parts of the South. But wait, wait, Let me just stay on that for a minute because you know what's mobile? Film production. Uh, now – People can disagree about whether you ought to incentivize it, right? But it makes sense. Why? Because you can film a movie anywhere. here or there or anywhere. You know what's not mobile? An oil refinery. You can't just pack up a $3 billion facility and move it someplace else, especially when there are only so many Mississippi rivers, right? So the fact that we have been doing this – on something that is a non-mobile investment, it literally has no precedent or any or, or parallel anywhere that we've seen across the country. Well, I, I, who are these guys? Who are the guys sitting on that board, and how can they be implementing a policy that is so totally counter-beneficial to the state that they live in? So, look, I think... My personal view is that it is structural and not about the personalities uh, because any time you put somebody in a position where they can make decisions over Without somebody else's revenue, knowing. right, then what happens is the only people that talk to them are the beneficiaries, right? So, so uh, who are they? They are appointed by mostly the governor. Um, there have been efforts in the past to reform this. About every 15, 20 years, somebody has the – does what we did and said, well, my, what is this? Are there are too many zeros here. We can't be – what is this thing? But you, this is in the Constitution that gives this board, with the approval of the governor, the authority to give away these exemptions. And the only people they hear from are the lobbyists for the companies. So it is – it's largely structured. For the first time, there's been some pushback. But even then, they're not 
elected by the people who are pushing back, right? They're from all over the state. They have a whole Department of Economic Development that's making this sound like this is something we really need to do. They have hundreds of exemptions anytime you look at it. What, what, what the key difference that's happening now is, is we said to the governor, look, the, the Constitution says and has said since 1936 that this state board can give these exemptions with the approval of the governor. The authority to approve or disapprove is the authority to reform. So we think you are responsible for this. And to his credit, he acted and acted quickly. And what he did was really milquetoast from one perspective. It said you have to create jobs and locals have to approve it. Uh, and a lot of people in industry said, ah, well, no big deal, until they realized that they had not been creating jobs. The whole manufacturing sector, the companies that got these exemptions, they got $23 billion, billion with a B, since 2000 all over the state, and they cut – I think it's about 26,000 jobs, um, not because they're bad companies, but because they're just making capital investments and automating. Uh, and, and that local approval would mean now they're going to be hearing from a different group of people. Now they're going to be hearing from the people who are facing real needs, and they're going to have to weigh these exemptions against what that money would pay for if they went to the budget. And that has transformed the conversation. So more important to us than who the specific people are is – does this local control persist? There is a well, when I say well-funded, money like you've never seen going into the next legislative session to try to uh, uh, take away the authority of locals and the authority of the governor to say yay or nay yeah, on their own money. Guys, and that's what we have uh, to fight. Th this is a real serious issue. This is for, for real serious for us and for them. And uh, they don't take stuff like this lying down. And um, and so I, I'm expecting it's going to be a pretty fierce fight. And, and the question is the extent to which people, again, are aware of, of what's going on, which is why I wanted you to come on, because this is not the last time you're going to be on. I'm going to have you on as much as I can between now and the legislative session and other people who you want to be part of this discussion um, and, and figure out um, how to, to, to raise the um, buzz factor and the awareness of it and see if we can actually um, keep the right of a community to determine whether it has to give up its property taxes or not, right? Is that, that's, is that that's, right? That's exactly right. It's the right of the local community to decide for themselves, and it's a hopeful moment because, one, this change that hadn't happened in 80 years happened. Two, you saw local communities start to exercise their authority and their discretion. And the opportunity this presents is, is for us to not just stop the exemptions or oppose the companies, but really to say, well, let's think differently about economic development. I mean, if we didn't, if we didn't approach economic I was about development. To say, we're not doing economic development right no. on so many different levels in this state. It's, it's really pathetic. And so, yes, that's exactly what's at issue. And so that actually leads me to my next question, because if you want to win a fight, you can't win it just by saying those guys are bad and what they're doing is bad. That doesn't work, right? You have to say, here's what we should be doing. Here's the alternative. So to what extent have you guys really been thinking about what is the right way to do economic development? And as we shut off this valve, so to speak, then, then here's how we should be focusing. That's, that's one thing. Secondly, I ask people in, in the political arena in the state constantly, how are we going to penetrate 
the thinking of people who are being bamboozled, and I use this word all the time, bamboozled by political philosophy that is to their detriment, but is being put out there in a way that convinces them that it's for their benefit, i.e. just about everything that the President of the United States today is doing. He's convinced people this is important to you, and it just, for the most part, is not, and it's actually detrimental to them. But they're they're buying it because, quite frankly, neither the Democrats nor the Republicans have done a damn thing really, to impact people's lives as a result of economic uh, revolution that we're going through, this digital and tech rev- uh, economic revolution. And again, people who listen to my show have heard me say this again and again. It's just crazy. It's not working. So, but, but, so you have to have an answer. Uh, you, have to have, you have to know what you're fighting for. That's right. That's right. And you have to know how to get into the minds of people who have been hoodwinked. And I don't see any move in this state to get through to people and unhoodwink them. So the, 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 the so-called red state guys upstate, the Republicans who are, who are still running the legislature, still have, they still have free reign because people are not hearing an alternative message. And I fault the Democratic Party for this, too, and they can get all over me if they want, but I don't think they're doing their job either. So um, if if that question about how you get red state people – look, if it's looked at globally, um, it's, a, it's a much thornier challenge. On this issue, <laughs> they're there. I mean, not all of them – some just become so kind of identi- – they identify so entirely with power that whatever power says they're for. But the first person to reject an exemption at the local level in this state's history was the sheriff in Caddo Parish, who is no liberal, okay? The last time he was in the news was he I, was – I think liberal and conservative are, are terms was, that was, don't mean a damn thing was, anymore, quite frankly. He, he was the guy who was was – critiquing the governor's criminal justice reforms because that means the good ones were going to get out of jail and they wouldn't wash their cars anymore, okay? And that was a horrible thing to say. But this guy looked at these exemptions and he said, no, hell no, I'm going to get that money from my sheriff's departments. Why should we be giving corporate welfare, which is not just a term on the left, it's a term on the left and the center and the right, right? Um, and so, one, that's hopeful. But your point about having a positive agenda is right. If the only economic development we know is 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 bribes and payoffs to companies then it feels like well at least this is something um here's here's an interesting fact people have asked well then why are we if we're given all these exemptions why are we hemorrhaging jobs to texas and you have to look at what jobs we're losing it's not manufacturing jobs everybody's losing manufacturing jobs they've lost four times as much as us why because they're a bigger economy where we're losing jobs to texas is education jobs healthcare jobs government jobs. There, it's a very conservative place, but they are taking the revenue that comes from economic production and investing it in improving quality of life. That means better schools. That means health care. Those are the growing parts of our economy in terms of job creation, well, and that can become the basis for a new economic me, development. Let me take this a little further, and we, we're not going to be able to get to it tonight because I've got Patrick Dobard from the um, uh, uh, school uh, programs uh, uh, waiting on the line, and I want him to join him into this conversation. But um, I have been uh, a, a passionate um, advocate for um, – 
doing a better job of growing our creative industries economic development sector, which is really our strong suit in this state, which we have failed to invest in, failed to support. And, and we have, you know, every, every other kid in, in the schools in this state are creatives, and we should be a leading creative economy. And uh, so what I would pose is that if, if we really want to put our, our eggs in the right basket, that that's something that needs to be further developed. And I'm going to want to talk to you about that offline at another time. But um, Patrick, I'm going to add him into the conversation. Can I just press the button? You're going to do it? Hi, Patrick. Hey, Jane. Have you been listening to the show at all? I just heard like the last three minutes. Okay. So um, uh, I have a fellow on here who uh, I, I'm placing a lot of hope in because he, he, he was able to work with the people of East Baton Rouge and uh, kill uh, an incentive, a corporate incentive that would have given them how much money from uh, local property taxes that would have otherwise gone to the schools, which have the same problem that you we are having here in New Orleans that we're having all over the state, and that is uh, uh, losing teachers, not being able to retain them because we don't have enough money to pay them and give them the increases they should get. They don't have the support they need. The accountability demands on the federal level are are stringent, and and uh, it's just it's a really tough situation. And and so in that one place, they uh, how much money? It, this one would have Did been. Did they kind of claw back? This one would have been six million dollars, but it's about forty million dollars per year that they've been losing. Uh, just to the schools um, in yep. East Baton Rouge Parish there that they're going to start clawing so back. So if you had that $40 million to spend in Baton Rouge in the schools, you might be able to train your kids to have the kind of skills that we need in order to advance our economy. Patrick, I wanted you to come on because I wanted you to help people understand um, the article that was in The Advocate was, was very informative. I think it was The Advocate, wasn't it, that went into these issues of the problems with teacher retention? Yes, it was. Okay. Um, I, I need you to, to spell this out for us a little bit so that, again, we understand the fallout from what Broad, Broderick is working on. And I think you guys need to get to know each other at some point because I think it, it could be helpful. Uh, well, Broderick and I met years actually, ago. That's right. <laughs> oh, when I was working with the RSD. When, when you said a gentleman and I could sort of pick up the voice, but when you mentioned the tax uh, exemption work, that I figured it was Broderick. So good to hear your voice, Broderick. You too, you too, Patrick. Yeah. So, so, Jane, I appreciate the time. So one thing I want to point out is that in New Orleans in particular, we're facing some very deep talent challenges. You know, when people ask me what are some of the reasons for the um, turnaround of the academic quality of schools in New Orleans post-Katrina, you know, I always say that one of the most important things has been the, the talent in the classroom, like those individuals closest to children um, make the most significant impact on the, on their lives. And so our classroom teachers and those individuals working in school buildings every day, uh, we have to make sure that we, we honor them in the right way and we keep them in a profession. But like many urban districts across the country, New Orleans is really struggling with high teacher attrition. Just this past year alone, 29% of teachers did not return to the classroom this past year in New Orleans. That's and that number roughly number. comes out to about 900 teacher openings. Think about that. 900 teacher openings in New Orleans in just one year. And so when we think about, like, teacher attrition, uh, we have to think about what are the things that we're going to be able to, to recruit teachers and retain teachers in our classroom. And so conversations around limited dollars, particularly limited tax dollars, 
um, is extremely important. But then I would always push the conversation. Uh, when you get more money, ideally, into school districts, how are we strategically using those dollars in order to handle what I would call, in this particular case, uh, a crisis around teacher shortages in New Orleans? So who's listening, and, 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 and how are you – one of the things that I wanted to hear more from uh, Broderick about is, um, again, I, I raised the issue, and you might have heard – I can't remember when you say last three minutes. I'm not sure whether we were on mm-hmm. this point or not, but I was asking the question. How are we going to reach people who have been bamboozled into thinking that policies – you know, these, these kind of old, what I would call basically chivalrous of, oh, it's so important that we not um, tax, that we reduce taxes, that we reduce government uh, involvement and so on and so on. There's certain, you know, dogma that is totally irrelevant to today's situation. Um, but they've bought it and, and, and they're, they're angry and they're mad, but they're kind of angry at the wrong people for the wrong reasons. So uh, how, how are you and others involved in, in education in New Orleans trying to reach um, the citizens who you need to be on your side? Well, we're doing it in a number of ways. First, you know, we, we do a lot of individual conversations with school leaders, with, um, with teachers, with those that are in the school building. And, you know, what I found over the years is that initially people are going to always tell you what they don't like and what's going wrong, or sometimes people will tell you what they're mad about. And what I've learned over the years is there's a simple question that I ask people. I know what you're against or what's going wrong, but what do you stand for, right? And so when we think about the conversations we're having, I think when we start talking about the stark reality of the number of people leaving the classroom, like 171 highly effective teachers left left New Orleans public schools in the past year. 398 effective proficient teachers have left. We start talking about the, the, the problem in real terms, and then we were like, okay, well, how do we reach out more? So what we did was we did, a, over the past six months, we surveyed over 1,400 current New Orleans public school teachers. We interviewed 40 of what are known as irreplaceable teachers and the superintendent's teacher advisory council members. We had 50-plus meetings with CMO leaders, principals, talent leads. We did interviews with people from the Department of Education, the Orleans Parish School Board, national education experts. Uh, we conducted a teacher compensation study across two-thirds of New Orleans public schools, and we analyzed the Department of Education retention data. And then when we looked at all of that, took all those conversations into consideration and really got above, like, the, the obvious noise, what we found is that there are four like strategies that we could use to cut teacher attrition by 5%. And I know some people will probably say, well, only 5%, but if we did these strategies, and and I'll tell you what we we found that they are, it's one, focusing on school leadership and culture, two, focusing on school talent management systems, three, teacher capacity and time, and four, citywide financial incentives, which I think to them, when you find dedicated revenue sources, sustaining that long term, when you think about uh, these efforts in reducing um, by 5% the, the teacher attrition rate, we could impact and have almost roughly another about 190 kids or so, I mean, another 190 teachers, just that alone that we will retain in the classroom. And think about when you have almost 200 teachers that staying in the classroom, that are doing a quality job, and that they are valued by monetary compensation as well as professional development, as well as recognition, that 
ultimately will change the life outcomes for kids for the better. Um, but it's about really focusing in on the issues and coming up with some creative solutions. And I feel like we have a few things that we, we, we have in place that we want to actualize on and that we're working on, but we're going to need resources to actualize on other things. You know, um, I, I hear what you're saying, and it sounds rational, and it sounds good. Uh, but I can't help while I'm sitting here think about two things. One, um, when when I was a television reporter, I remember so clear. you know, when I was, like, producing four news stories a day and then I would get feedback from people. Uh, I, I didn't get feedback on a story until I had repeated the same ingredients about four or five times. If I did a story three or four days in a row, I was going to I was going to penetrate the minds of people. I was going to get a response. Secondly, um, uh, the message has to be so simple that coming through the clutter, especially today, of our very fragmented media, and I just saw a little article today that said that digital media this coming year will actually surpass in spending all traditional advertising media. So we really mm. are going to have to continue to understand how to work with this new um, com- communicating tool, the advertising on social media. I I think well everything you said was rational and made a lot of sense, but I can't help but think about um, the raging Cajun. I always uh, have a problem remembering his <laughs> name. Um, uh, the economy stupid guy. Carwell. Uh, uh, Carwell. What? I know. Isn't that frustrating? Yes. Okay, we know who we mean. The guy who was uh, a, a guru for behind Clinton. Who, who oh, James Carville. Carville. Carville, thank, thank you. you. <laughs> Carville. We should remember Carville City. So uh, Carville said, you know, it's the economy, stupid. And it was like uh, – and, and from that emanated some very, very simplistic messages. I, I, I don't quite hear that yet. And, and I think a lot of people have, have lived through so many years of assuming that our schools suck. Is that – a profanity? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know whether that qualifies for something I shouldn't have said on the air. But um, that it's really hard to catch their attention and say, okay, here's what's going to work. Now, I, I, I want to um, please respond to that, either one of you, but I also want to move to the fact that the accountability issue, because it sounded like, well, a lot of teachers are concerned about not having – um, pay increases and not having the, the right kind of support in the, bill, in the in the schools, that another issue is the frustrations of dealing with the accountability system. And honestly, I'm not, I'm not, I'm no dummy. I'm not brilliant. I am not an educator. So I don't understand a lot of issues that have to do with education, but I don't understand what's going on with accountability. I'm hearing very conflicting stories about it. So please give me a couple headlines to better understand What's going on with that? Well, I'll, I'll address the latter. Um, the accountability system for Louisiana, in 1999, the State Board of Education decided to put in a system that there would be annual assessments at certain grades for students to ensure that they were, at that time, um, proficient at grade levels. And I can remember I was um, several years into my teaching career, almost like a decade in, and I welcomed it because I could remember seeing students or knowing of students who graduated from schools, but then they couldn't coherently fill out a job application. And I felt like as an educator, that was malpractice. Like our job was to make sure that kids were literate and functioning well in society upon graduation. 
and in Louisiana, there are like five um, five categories of where you're defined as far as like being proficient. And the lowest being unsatisfactory, then the next highest approaching basic, then basic, mastery, and advanced. And in 1999, approaching basic was the bar that the state set as being proficient. And I remember the pushback in the media in in schools like, oh, you shouldn't test kids, and oh, this is too hard. But when you think about it, approaching basic, just think of how that sounds. You're only approaching basic. So on the 60-item social studies test, which a year later I ended up being the coordinator for the state on, you really only have to get about maybe 25 items correct to achieve approaching basic. And then the state decided they would gradually increase the level of um, rigor and the level of proficiency to, or the level that they would determine what proficient was. And then for a number of years, um, most recently, basic was the bar. So when you hear us talk about New Orleans reforms, we talk about that in 2005, only 34% of students were proficient at, let's say, English language arts. Today, um, 68% of students are proficient in English language arts. Significant growth, great gains. But what we've done is we've increased the rigor of the accountability bar and what proficient is now is the mastery bar, the second highest bar. And what mastery means is that every child in Louisiana that scores at mastery is on grade level and prepared for college and career. So if you're a fourth grader and score at, at mastery, that means that if you continue that all the way through high school, you will be ready to enter college and or career on level. And so what we've done over the years is increase the accountability bar. We've increased the standard gradually. And now it's just a higher bar to reach, but the right bar, I think, because who does not want their child to be at proficient of, of a mastery level on grade level? And so the challenge is, is that you have such large numbers because of generational and systemic inequity in Louisiana that it is very difficult when you have a ninth grader that enters ninth grade and there are two, three grade levels rating behind, grades behind, two and three grade levels behind that in, in, in a few years you have to get them to proficient. And so that's when the state decided they were going to add, like, a growth factor, how much you grow a child from where you get them at the beginning of the year. So that gets real wonky, and that's what makes it confusing, I think, for the general public. So schools are now under an accountability system that there's some factor for growth depending on how challenging your student population is, as well as the absolute how much are you um, achieving academically, along with other factors, whether you're high school or elementary school. Okay. And so it, that's been the gradual process, Gene, over the years. Okay. Uh, I, I, it's hard to argue with what, what you just just described. Um, but at the same time, there is the sense that that drive to achieve those grade levels um, it has does have a, something of a cost and a downside in terms of a more rounded uh, kind of education that, that um, enables teachers and students to – to kind of uh, enrich uh, their experience to the point of really learning about their their um, inherent talents and abilities. And, and you heard me say that I'm very pro-educating um, kids in the creative industries and in the creative mm-hmm. practice and going after the opportunities that the creative economy um, offers our city and state. So um, I, I'm not going to uh, take this too far because I only have so much time today, but I want to continue to pursue mm-hmm. this question of how do you balance that rigor that you need to achieve those standards with a richer 
cultural and um, and and maybe STEAM. You know, I'm a very big proponent of STEAM, meaning um, STEM plus the arts, um, so that uh, kids really do have a great experience. And also the teachers enjoy what they're doing more. So I think that there's a need for some kind of a breakthrough here. Speaking of breakthrough, let me come back now to uh, Broderick and you and find out what it is that the two of you have been talking about and what what is the breakthrough strategy for getting greater public engagement, not just from the teachers and, and parents who have students in the school system, but the rest of us out here who care about our economy, who care about our city, and know that educating our kids is essential for us being able to compete economically with the rest of the world, where increasingly the educational um, uh, uh, competence and abilities of kids are, are critical for them being able to, to operate in this new world. So either one of you can start. I would just like to hear you both on this. And warning well, you that look, I I'll, only have a few more Yeah, minutes. I'll hop in. I mean, just, um, you know, I think one of the one of the challenges of organizing is that it sometimes feels like people get involved when there's a crisis. 29% turnover in one year is a crisis. I mean, that is the kind of statistic once it's understood, and people understand it. I mean, my wife is a teacher. I have two kids who are in public schools here. People understand that, and I think understand the challenges of it. Uh, the, teaching is a profession, or ought to be, and there's a difference between a profession and a workforce, and how inside of a decentralized system where the institutions that have been a voice and a source of power for teaching as a profession have been largely dismantled, you can rebuild some power and standing, and not to be too opaque about it. I mean, when you when you when a, a union has been entirely decimated, those are the folks who would have raised this ten years ago, uh, and that's not what it used to be. Let's put it that way. Now, we're, now we are all where we are. How we face this as a community where it's no longer about charters or non-charters. I think, Patrick, that's the kind of thing our organizations will get behind. Absolutely. I agree with Roger. It's like, you know, New Orleans, I think about the sector in three parts, regulators, innovators, and collaborators. And the regulators of government, they set the framework for New Orleans and make sure that all kids are equitably served. The innovators are those in the classroom doing the work every day to serve our kids well. And then the collaborators, organizations such as mine, New Schools for New Orleans, and, and partners like Broderick, where it's like how do you then take limited resources and then make sure that you equitably distribute them amongst the schools in order to just, like, drive over all improvement. And so I totally agree. You know, teaching is a profession. Um, you know, I, I've been in a profession almost 27 years now. It's a calling, and there, there's nuance to it as how do you keep people motivated? How do you make them feel valued? And it, it can happen in a decentralized system because you have leaders of schools now. There's more urgency around understanding what your workforce needs are because quite literally a school's existence and the management's existence in New Orleans is, is from contract to contract. And most people are on five-year contracts. Some of them are on a little bit longer if they're performing well. And that brings a sense of intimacy and urgency that in large, almost bureaucratic districts you don't find. Like churn is just accepted and you just deal with it. And the low-performing schools, those are, quote, unquote, those schools. And the high-performing ones are those schools. And people just have tolerated it. But we have a new dynamic in New Orleans where I think the vested interest is at a much more acute level. And I think it's a good thing to have partnerships, to have 
creative energy among different organizations, organizations that on paper may not look like they could align. And then when you find that commonality, again, going back to what I said earlier about what it is that you stand for, and ideally many people just stand for like a quality um, work life for teachers and then also just a great environment for students to learn. And I think, you know, we, we can learn a lot from each other and we can also work well together. And I just, you know, continue to look forward to having these types of dialogues with individuals to make certain that we're doing okay. the best thing for our teachers uh, and our students from New Orleans. Fantastic. So that's what leads me to do. Uh, I'm going to have to close off this discussion this time, but we're going to continue it. But um, let me uh, uh, get from both of you how people can con- make connection with you, contact you, to get involved with you, to help um, break through and uh, help achieve change because, man, we need it. Okay, so Patrick, what's um, what's a website for you that people can uh, check you out and and, and f- find ways to c- communicate with you? And I sure hope you have fo- phone numbers on it. I, ha- I hate these websites that don't have phone numbers. She's on tapping them. at me. Drives me crazy. <laughs> Go ahead. Yeah, not, we can I can easily be reached at um, our website is www.nsno.org. So www.newschoolsfromneworleans.org. Uh, you could just click on it. There's a contact link. Uh, you could just either shoot a note to me as well on that site. Um, and, yeah, be totally responsive. So just go to our site. And also I want to tell people to go to teachneworleans.net. That's all one word, teachneworleans.net. It's the first one-stop shop for all public education jobs in New Orleans. We have a resume drop. Um, there are all job openings in New Orleans. And so even in the decentralized system, NSNO was able to create with other partners the first centralized website, and that's teachneworleans.net. Um, Patrick, thank you. I look forward to continuing conversations with you going forward. Please please call me when you're trying to get some attention on something you're doing. Uh, Broderick, um, I'm going to ask you, first of all, to answer that same question, and then I'm going to ask you to tolerate. Uh, let me do this last part of my show, and then I, I still want to uh, talk to you for a minute before uh, you walk out of the sure. studio. So uh, what's a number, what's an email where, or uh, a website where people Pe- can reach you? People can go to togetherla.org. Uh, or send an email to TogetherLouisiana at gmail.com. And we're in the process now of building a New Orleans organization, um, which will be going on over the next few months. So it's a good time to, to get involved, especially if people are a part of a, a, a religious congregation or civic organization or nonprofit. That's the basis and members of our organizations, but everybody's invited to be involved. So TogetherLA.org. Okay. Guys, I'm going to uh, tune in now on um – uh, some folks who are working on a great science fair that happens to be going on right now. And um, it's, it's a perfect example of the kind of thing that really incentivizes kids and faculty um, to do better. And um, uh, announce yourself, please. Hi, this is Annette Ertling, and I am one of the co-directors of the Greater New Orleans Science and Engineering Fair, and I'm very happy to be with you. And Annette, I'm going to look for um, getting a post-fair um, um, appraisal of what what happened and who did what interesting things, and maybe you can bring me a couple of the students who came up with some really innovative ideas. But uh, give us a little bit of uh, the information on the fair, where it is, what you're trying to accomplish with it, and uh, and maybe some of the projects that kids are bringing to your to uh, your attention sure sure so this is the regional fair for a four parish area orleans jefferson plaquemine and st bernard 
Any student is eligible. They simply need to be nominated by their school or their homeschool association. And this week we had almost 300 students from a number of schools wow. in our area participate. We had a middle school session on Tuesday with judging, and we have about 150 projects that are still set up by our high school students who were judged today. We do have an opportunity for public viewing, one more, and that's tomorrow morning between 9.30 and 11.30. It is on Tulane's, Tulane University's campus in the Student Center, the LBC, Lavin Burnick Center. On what street is so, that? That is right off of Ferret Street. Okay, and where can people park? I always want to help people because going on campuses is a pain in the neck if you don't know where to park. You know, parking is a little crazy on the Uptown campus. So the best parking is right along Broadway, which is runs adjacent to the campus. How do they so access they could, that? They could park there and then just walk through campus to get to the LBC, the student center. Okay. Um, so what kind of uh, uh, things have the kids brought to the fair? Tell me some of the more interesting projects that you've seen so far. So we had a number of interesting projects this year. It 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 always gets better and better, and it's amazing to me how creative some of these kids can be. There was one project at the high school level where it was a team project, and these students were writing a mathematical algorithm to better control a robot, and they are actually using this this software, this algorithm that they've written in a competition that they're participating in, the first robotics Bayou Regional, which is occurring in March, where they're going to be competing with 60 teams, and we have four countries represented at this competition. So here's an example of them doing a science fair project and having it apply to something that's coming up just in a few months. So that one I thought was particularly exciting. Well, um, and then I, we had I, a I'm very absolutely... interesting project by by a student who felt like we needed to make better use of our leftover Mardi Gras beads. And so he did an experiment to test whether using Mardi Gras beads to fill potholes worked better than asphalt. <laughs> and so that was really cool. And he actually concluded based work? on some testing, strength testing, that the Mardi Gras beads really added some strength to those pothole fixers. <laughs> oh, my God, is that great? I love that one. That's a national story. If you if 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 you can figure out that that actually works, you need to call um, the networks and and try to get a story on that. On uh, you know, uh, get Anderson Cooper or the the CBS Morning Show. I can think of any number of those guys that would be uh, well, uh, give you some uh, mileage on that. Well, that would be fabulous. I would love to bring that student at some time if you Please. have time in the next week or two. Absolutely. And he can tell you all about his project. I want to hear from the algorithm kids, too, because I don't even have a clue what an algorithm means, really. I mean, I know it <laughs> rules our lives now. I mean, we're all subject to the algorithms that tell somebody why they should run their furniture ads on my New York Times feed uh, on my phone uh, repeatedly to the point where I want to break the phone. So I, I, I need to understand understand more about that but i'd love to talk to the algorithm kids as well that would be wonderful we we could make that happen <laughs> <laughs> okay so, so all right one more time on the fair it is happening now we're on now uh, tomorrow is the last correct. day it's at tulane university tomorrow is the last day uh between 9 30 and 11 30 if the public wants to come onto tulane's campus to take a look at some of the high the high school projects that are still on display 
they are more than welcome to. Our award ceremony is tomorrow night, and it's going to be in Loyola University's Roussel Hall. And because of the generosity of our wonderful sponsors, we are giving away over $65,000 in prizes, awards, trips, grants to schools, etc. I mean, they just really believe in incentivizing and rewarding these students, teachers, and schools to encourage these kids to look at STEM as a future. Well, um, and all I want to do with your STEM is add the word A for art in there, and 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 so we can approach STEAM, which I'm a big believer in. And, and, and there you go. Surely, Annette, we can uh, have some conversation on that going forward. But um, yeah, I think it would be very. Int- I'll bet you anything. One of those. Um, experiments that those kids are doing is going to make one of those kids enormously wealthy uh, as the next <laughs> Bezos <so>. or Gates <laughs> or, or um, you know, did you know that Kickstarter came out of New Orleans? Really? Kickstarter was was developed by somebody from New Orleans. I'm trying to get my um, hands on that person, get him on the phone. I haven't. He's apparently very elusive. Uh, so anybody out there who has a good Kickstarter connection who can get that guy on the phone for me, I'd love to talk to him. Because there's a guy who started something right here at the local level, and it went big time national, international, I'm sure, for that matter. Um, and uh-huh. so you never know with these experiments what's going to come out of them. So all That's power right. to you. Congratulations on the fair. Y'all check out the awards ceremony at Loyola tomorrow night or Tulane. And again, website where people can get the details. Uh, it's the acronym for Greater New Orleans Science and Engineering Fair. So it's G-N-O-S-E-F dot org. Do it again. G-N-O-S-E-F dot org. Or Greater New Orleans Science, science Fair. and Engineering Fair. It's the acronym fair. for Greater New Orleans Science and Engineering Fair. All right. Thank you, Annette, and uh, please give us a call. Uh, we're going to try to get you on uh, with your um, some of these brilliant young minds uh, in the near future. Ann Wills, I'm sure, will handle that for us. Thanks, Jean. I appreciate that. Thank you. Uh, well, so, folks, we're out of time, and uh, it's been a pleasure um, talking to people who are making things happen, Patrick and Broderick and Annette. So um, uh, please uh, keep us in mind. Also, if, if there's something going on that you know about that has is, is, is going to change things, I'm all about change. I grew up in the Bronx in a very poor community. We didn't I, – I always use this example that um, we had a little stick – a stick – for a towel rack and it drove me crazy as a kid and I said I gotta get out of here and I did and I don't have a stick for a towel rack right now but right now my plumbing isn't working so well in my hundred plus year old house but um, I, I, I believe very much in the power of citizens to make things happen and, and you've had some examples of it on the show tonight um, talk with you next week Gene Nathan Crosstown Conversations on WBOK Real Talk for Real Times <laughs>